the Dead Lady Show podcast. I'm Susan Stone. The Dead Lady Show celebrates women, both overlooked and iconic, who achieved amazing things against all odds while they were alive. And we do it through women's history storytelling on stage here in Berlin and beyond, in places like New York and Scotland and Belgium. And then we bring you a fine selection of these stories here on the podcast. Happy New Year, everybody, and welcome to our first podcast episode of 2023. And welcome to you, Katie, joining me on the comfy couch. Hello, Susan. I'm very comfy. I'm glad. This is. I will argue that the couch on the other side is actually comfier. But here is spoiled for choice. It's cozier. Yeah. Well, I'm going to keep our intro brief today because we have a longer talk today on a dead lady who turned out to have a connection with more than a few of our previous subjects, and she had her own perspective on history, both macro and micro. You could say. Ah, you certainly could. So Bernice Abbott was a wildly skilled photographer and her story is so interesting that our lovely co-founder, Florian Dersens, indulge in a few extra details. Just a few. <laughs> <laughs> there are, as you can imagine, a number of glorious images to look at over on our website, deadladyshow.com slash podcast, or just click the link for the episode notes in your podcast app. Here's more from Florian speaking from the stage of our beloved venue, Akut. This past summer, um, I was meeting a friend who works at the New York Public Library, and he recommended the, the library's first permanent exhibition of its treasures. Apparently, they had lots of changing exhibitions, but this is the first time they had like a, a permanent exhibit. And it's in this beautiful space. It's not very big, um, and it has about 250 items. And as I walked around, I saw their Gutenberg Bible and their Shakespeare's first folio and manuscripts, notes, and letters by Charlotte Bronte and Rosa Parks and Virginia Woolf. Um, yeah, excellent women all. Portraits of Mary Wollstonecraft, James Joyce, as well as local history, uh, like this poster for the 1970 Christopher Street Liberation Day on the first anniversary of Stonewall. Um, but then I spotted this. Very intriguing image. Does anybody know what it is? Hmm? For, for the, the listeners at home, I'll describe it as sort of a round, pillowy brie um, <laughs> with, like, little drops on it. Does that help? No. Close. Yes. Yes, it is a mold. It is penicillin, yay! And I was surprised to learn from the little sign that this had been taken in 1946, this photograph, which was the year penicillin, of course, was first marketed by Pfizer. Um, and this picture was taken, by, well, you know, um, it did some good, penicillin. <laughs> yes, good. Um, and the picture was taken by Bernice Abbott, the same photographer who took that picture of James Joyce. And of course, I'd heard about Abbott. Um, she'd popped up in the biography of Baroness Elsa von Freitag Loringhoven, who I, yes, I spoke about on this stage. Um, incidentally, this is the Baroness's portrait of Berenice Abbott, um, which the baronet was very infuriated that Bernice wouldn't take her picture for free. Um, she stole into her studio. She broke into the studio and stole it. Uh, the next time Bernice Abbott would see it was when it was hanging at MoMA. 
and of course, I knew Bernice's Abbott's portraits of 1920s lesbian luminaries, such as Juna Barnes, um, who has also been presented on this stage, uh, Janet Flanner, the New Yorker writer. Um, but I had no idea that Bernice Abbott had taken these scientific photographs, let alone that she had several patents. But then I dove into this 800-page biography by Julia Van Haften, and I realized that she'd been there all along in basically all our Dead Lady Show research. She was on a panel with New Yorker writer Emily Hahn, seen here with her beloved monkey. Um, She witnessed Josephine Baker's explosive debut in Paris. She photographed Emma Goldman's boyfriend, (laughs) seen here appreciating (laughs) Josephine Baker. Um, And here she is with Leonora Carrington, and like Pete Mondrian and Max Ernst and all these people. So how do all these threads connect? To do that, we need to go back to the 19th century. I was born in 1898, so you might say that my life has spanned a century. This is my century, and I want to see it through. So I'm planning to live to be 102 or 100 anyway. She, she didn't quite make it to 102, but she got very, very close. Bernice was born on July 17th, 1898, the fourth child of a traveling salesman and a seamstress in Springfield, Ohio. A local brewery there has a mural now uh, honoring her. Her parents' marriage was very, very unstable, and when her father sued for divorce, her mother just uh, left town with her and uh, her sister, And it took her to basically all the Midwestern capital seas, um, Cincinnati, Columbus, and Cleveland. (laughs) Bernice became a modern, or pre-modern, I guess, um, latchkey kid, out exploring these cities on her own. Her mother would claim that she was a widow in all these new places. She would tell Bernice that her dad had kidnapped her siblings and, and even marry again, despite the fact that she wasn't actually divorced Um, Bernice would be spoiled for marriage ever after, later saying, marriage is the finish for women who want to do their work. It's good only for men. You can't let things hold you back. And when you're married, women let everything hold them back. Most marriages are tragedies for ambitious women. Bernice was ambitious. Here's a report card. She had a 95 for Latin, a 98 for oratory, Midway through high school, her father uh, ended his life, and she was never connected to her mother, who disliked her tomboyish ways and always wanted her to wear a corset instead of sort of loose skirts and and tops that she wanted to wear. Yeah, I know. So she planned her first act of rebellion. Quote, The day after I graduated from Lincoln High School, I had the barber cut off the long, thick braid which hung down my back. And with its departure, it came a great sense of relief. End quote. Yeah. She's looking good. Um, she stayed in Ohio, though, enrolling at Ohio State, where she writes, a handful of students from New York at once mistook me for a sophisticate. We became friends, and a new life began for me. In college, she only sort of did well in French. She tried astronomy. wasn't for her. And when the U.S. joined World War I, um, she tried to apply to become a pilot at the nearby School of Military Aeronautics, uh, 
only to be told they weren't taking any girls. I mean, she was better off. Let's face it. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Desperate to get away from her mom, she borrowed $20 from friends and bought a ticket to New York City one way. She was 19. At the time, the historically black neighborhood of the village was attracting bohemians who acted a lot like Bernice. But Bernice, having grown up poor, would never romanticize poverty. She, she moved in next to the Provincetown Players, where playwrights like Eugene O'Neill were shaking up American drama. Within months, she'd become friends with Trina Barnes, the Baroness, Edna St. Vincent Millay, and suffragists and anarchists from a Goldman circles. But unlike some of them, she had to make ends meet by working as a secretary or a waitress. She'd been hoping to study journalism, but uh, Columbia felt, quote, like a hell of a sausage factory, end quote. (laughs) So she was just about to make her debut as an actress in one of these plays um, that were shaking up the off, 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 off Broadway when she caught the Spanish flu. Yeah, for for two months, she was uh, here at St. Vincent's Hospital in the charity ward. Uh, St. Vincent's, of course, it was also the place that took care of the wounded from the Stonewall Uprising from 9-11, not to mention countless people suffering from HIV-AIDS. It's no longer there. When she recovered, she had to learn to walk all over again. This is where she moved to, to Clothesline Alley off Christopher Street. And once recovered, she would, quote, toot around the village, dancing with her buddy Man Ray, who also took these nude pictures of her. That picture on the left that you can't see the face of, I also showed here <laughs> as a picture of the Baroness. The biographers, you know, they don't agree. Uh, it might be anyone, let's face it. It might not be anyone. It might be any white lady of a certain age. She started training as a sculptor. This picture is the only visual evidence we have of her sculpting. It's sort of a lady lampshade. (laughs) Nevertheless, she was encouraged by Marcel Duchamp and the Baroness, who enchanted her with stories of Europe. America was no place for the artist, and it was no place for me. Nothing would have happened to me here. A poor girl from the Middle West... Despite nothing open to you except marriage. I worked hard, finding a lot of jobs and everything, got the fare. And I had about $6 left over. I went. March 21st, 1921, on the Rochambeau. One way. She was 23, and everything she owned fit into a small trunk. Unable to afford uh, actual French art school, she may do with sort of pay-as-you-go life-drawing classes, relying on her leftist trust fund friends to supply the champagne and the oysters and, and all the parties that 1920s Paris is so legendary for. Eventually, she'd find a garret studio near the Gare Montparnasse, sleeping on the balcony so she, in the morning she could descend into her drawing room. Uh, she signed a letter... Your bad little Berenice. Um, and suddenly her name had this extra E, Berenice. Close friends got to call her Barry. She was still struggling with her attraction to women, writing, 
I'm rather tired, rather embarrassed at being curio. I want to appear to feel human because God knows I am human, ordinary enough. It didn't help that her bohemian style didn't seem to translate. Quote, it was all right for the men to be very eccentric and different, but it was not all right for a girl. End quote. Now, she met all of the movers and the shakers, uh, Satie, Leger, Gide, but it was time for the young artist's new rite of passage, moving to Berlin. <laughs> yes. Another friend loaned her money for the train ticket. Once there, uh, Bernice planned to teach American dances like Ragtime and the very, very hot new Foxtrot. And at first, it was magical. You know this. Uh, you've done this. Um, Germany exceeds all of my expectations. Energy, force abounds in the air. The newer architecture, excellent. Streets big and clean, shops handsome, original and all material advantages without any of the stamp of grossness and commerciality that spoils everything in USA. <laughs> Theater, photography, music, years ahead. The place is clearly more healthy than Paris. Dry, cold, fresh. One does not see a fifth or a hundredth of the number of Americans here. Uh, still, it would be a willowy American who would lead her back to Paris. That's Thelma Wood, an ex of Edna St. Vincent Millay. Edna St. Vincent Millay, who was named after what? The hospital that I was just talking about. Anyway, so she was a, an ex of Edna and a future ex of Juna Barnes, Thelma was. For a while, Wood funded Berenice's trips back and forth to Berlin, but Berenice had trouble keeping apartments or getting apartments in Berlin, and her sculpting was very loud also. <laughs> I'll quote here very briefly. To find rooms yet more than all for Ausländern is seemingly impossible. More substantial funding from an American patron fell through, however, and when she missed a train somewhere in Belgium, she was forced to leave behind all her sculpture material and then start all over in Paris. There, she ran into her old buddy, Man Ray, um, who told her, my last assistant knew too much. He got in my way. What about me? I don't know a thing, she said. <laughs> Why not? Uh, so she was there when he took this picture of Proust, on his deathbed. But it was in the dark room where she really um, first heard her calling. Quote, half the fun of photography is fooling around, mixing solutions, playing with paper, exercising tangible authority over the silent partners of photography, film, paper, chemicals. She earned about a dollar and a half a day. And about Paris, she'd later say, we were completely liberated. We had the illusion that we could go ahead and do our work and that nothing would ever come and stop us. In one gay bar, she fell, and who could not, for the dreamy Tilia Perlmutter, who would later become the first French translator of Anne Frank. And at a raid in another one, she was arrested alongside sculptor and future spy Gwen Lagallienne. <laughs> Bernice was a big drinker, uh, would always be perhaps an even bigger smoker, but maybe she realized she was also a photographer. <laughs> um, she took her first tentative snaps in Amsterdam, and her first portrait subject was her new friend and fellow astrology enthusiast, Baggy Guggenheim. 
Man Ray agreed that she could take these pictures during her lunch hour if she wanted to, just as long as she charged the same fee as he would. Um, She made it a rule very early on never to do work for free. Yeah, which... Yeah, and this is maybe also why the Baroness was so upset. Um, She later described the art of portraiture as follows. Most people indulge in a certain amount of self-deception. They imagine they want to see themselves as they really are, yet their subconscious sensor shears away double chins, warts, big ears, and such, so that their mental image is totally different from what the outsider sees, and especially from what the relentless lens registers. Here, what the photographer must do is to put the sitter's best face forward without sacrificing all identity. Her career quickly took off. This is a famous picture she took of Jean Cocteau. This is Harlem Renaissance writer Claude McKay. And this is Sylvia Beach, the famous bookseller from Shakespeare and Company, looking very sort of glossy and moody. (laughs) Eventually, Ray got very jealous of her clientele, so she had to strike out on her own. Bernice was 28 and soon had her first big solo show, after which her work started popping up in exhibitions in Brussels and all over Germany. The Baroness, who had newly returned from New York to Paris, thought Berenice was, and I quote, inflated by inorganic prosperity, too newly gained, automatically with wobbly, flop, poppy-eyed vanity, idiotic flapper pout. (laughs) Still upset. And this despite the fact that Berenice was still living from loan to loan, perhaps because she would only do one sitting a day, then taking five or six exposures on that day. But being poor was simply not part of her story. As her single published poem from this era has it, don't discuss life, people, problems. Don't voice poverty. That's the entirety of the poem. I should note here that though Berenice's photographs were considered artful, the idea that photography was an art form on the same level as sculpture or painting was still very novel. This is why when Berenice got obsessed with Eugene Adjaye, a local photographer who'd been documenting Parisian street scenes as reference material for architects and artists uh, since 1890, she was one of the few people who recognized his work as revelatory. His compositions were just about perfect. He knew absolutely where to put his camera. And this is art. The art is partly right there. The art is in selecting what is worthwhile to take the trouble about. Second place, you put your camera in the right place. And that has to be very selective. You can put it in a thousand places. The same subject. So she would scrape together all her francs to occasionally get to buy like a single print off him uh, and even asked and and then actually got to take his picture. But when she brought over the resulting portrait, he was already dead. Scrambling to save his 1,500 negatives and 8,000 prints with her girlfriend's money, uh, she effectively became his executor, tirelessly promoting his work, often to the detriment of her own. Only 40 years later did MoMA finally buy her collection. She really hated being constantly compared to him, but when she returned to New York with the idea of setting up an extra, like a satellite photography studio there, she was so enraptured by the changing city, like, you have to imagine, in her absence, like, skyscrapers had, like, arrived. 
that the city would prove her next subject. Quote, people said, you're crazy to go back, just insane. But I felt an extremely strong pull. The American scene just fascinated me. I was like a stranger. I could have been from Mars almost. Now, the start of the Great Depression wasn't a great time to be charging like $150 for a portrait. This was at a time when, when haircuts cost a quarter and department stores were rolling out photo booths um, where, where for $1 you could take your own picture. These pictures are from something called a photo weigh, which would weigh you at the same time as take your picture and then print <laughs> your weight with your picture. I mean... So to, to get money, she'd grudgingly start taking pictures of tycoons, stinky little men, for Fortune magazine. That's her quote, stinky little men. Could be mine, but she, she's better. Um, she'd also document work for the great artist Noguchi, and his portrait of her is now at the National Portrait Gallery in D.C. She sold a share in her Ajay collection, and with the proceeds, she bought a very, very large camera. Most of the pictures I um, shot with what we call a view camera, which is what this camera is. See, I was working with an 8x10 camera. Century Universal. It had the most swings, the most movements. Takes you time to set it up. Takes you time to focus. You change the shape of a subject by tilting the back, but you change the focus by tilting the front. It took a while before she felt comfortable lugging this 40-pound monster around to document the city's changes. But as the Depression worsened in Hoovervilles, like this one um, in Central Park that she took this picture of, were going up. It was very hard to enthuse anybody to pay Berenice to take pictures of New York. Still, she, she designed this beautiful mural for MoMA. They had this um, show of murals and she designed this, this mural, and it's, it's a collage of these steel girders that she photographed of one of the big bridges, I forget which one. And then in between uh, the girders, she very artfully spliced in photos of the city. So there's the Statue of Liberty and some skyscrapers. It's very cool. Yet nothing from her solo show sold. The good reviews were good, but... No one was buying. And even though at this point she was creating absolute masterpieces, like the one on the left there is called Exchange Place, which is one of the narrowest streets in New York City. And because the skyscrapers are so close together, the sun really barely reaches the ground. And it's this very tall, cropped image um, that you really sort of have to see in person, but it's very impressive. Um, and that is, of course, Wall Street. Um, I know, she, she was paid for this one. <laughs> and at this time, she also made perhaps her most famous picture, which is the one on the left called Night View. The picture on the right maybe is of her taking the picture, probably not. Um, but yeah, she had terrible fear of heights, I'll just say. So she took this picture from the top of the newly finished Empire State Building. Night view, and it was 15-minute exposure. But I had planned it pretty well because I, I, night views are very difficult. This building can be done only a few minutes of the day and the year. 
you have to take the shortest day in the year. Since most people leave their, their, their offices at 5, you have to go there and be set up and ready before then. After you take it, the, the lights begin to go out. And before long, you don't have that magnificent view. To earn money, she started teaching at my alma mater, the New School for Social Research, where she would teach one night a week for the next 24 years. Her colleagues were the likes of Erin Copland and Martha Graham. Richard Avedon took one of her classes. I want to say Eudora Welty applied. I'm not sure she got in. We, we don't really know, but Dion Arbus did. Unlike Arbus, most of her female students' careers were thwarted as, quote, they always have to go home and make supper for somebody. Yeah. By now, she'd long been forced to abandon her studio off Central Park and return to the village, splitting two stylish but stark open-plan apartments on opposite sides of the hallway with her new girlfriend, the art critic Elizabeth McCosland. Um, the picture on the left is her with Gertrude Stein. Um, Bernie's got to call her Butchie. They turned one of the apartments into a studio-slash-darkroom, but the two addresses ensured their sort of privacy as a gay couple. And for the next 30 years, they may do without a tub or a shower in either apartment. It's the village. <laughs> uh, they'd met after Elizabeth wrote a positive review of one of Bernice's shows. She loved, quote, that the Chrysler Building, Rockefeller Center, the Stock Exchange, and any of a hundred similar displays of ostentatious and vulgar wealth should exist side by side with those Central Park shanties which she's also photographed. More of an outspoken leftist than Bernice, um, who nevertheless remain a communist for the rest of her life, if not publicly, Elizabeth would make explicit a lot of the politics implicit in Bernice's images for their next project, funded by Roosevelt's uh, Works Progress Administration. Documenting the city from tip to tail and titled Changing New York, the project took four years and resulted in a carefully curated set of 100 images with text by Elizabeth. Quote, the anarchistic unplanning of our cities is certainly a major part of the story to be told about them for future ages. Though New York opposes the filthy, ugly streets of the east side to broad avenues of high rents, yet even these tell a story not completely lovely. How pathetic are the wisps of trees which the wealthy can boast? What happens to human beings who must perforce live among such surroundings? The portrait of the city should have these, too. Used to working alone, however, Bernice would get frustrated about having to work with a team of researchers, not to mention men. Well, I was on the Federal Art Project at that time in the 30s, and each week I would take some pictures in to show the supervisors. And uh, <clears throat> there were some of the Bowery, and uh, the man in case, I can't remember his name, he said, nice girls don't go down on the Bowery. And I said, well, I'm not a nice girl. <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a photographer, go anywhere. Yeah. So. At this point, almost a century after she took these pictures, it's all the more important to have Bernice's record of what New York was like at this time of transition. Like, does anybody know what this is? Yes, it's the old Penn Station. It was demolished pretty shortly after she took this picture and replaced with 
something really dreadful. <laughs> and when it came to publishing Changing New York in 1939, however, Elizabeth's extensive captions were replaced wholesale before going to print, which has affected how Bernice's work has been seen over the years. And the originals have only been published recently. Here's what originally accompanied this image of a gunsmith's gun-shaped sign in print, Gunsmith and Police Department. Frank Lava's gun shop was founded in 1850 by Eli Parker. It closed up during the Civil War, but was reopened in 1870 by ancestors of the present owner. The Lava shop used to do repair work for the police until the department retained its own armorers. It still does work, however, for the sheriff's staff. And here is Elizabeth's caption, admittedly, Slightly overwritten. <laughs> content is inseparable from form here. Of other photographs in this series, it has been said that a composition is dynamic, form powerful, organization of parallel and diagonal lines rhythmic and moving, as if subject matter and style could be divided. In this picture, subject matter is form. Later ages may look at gunsmith and police department with the same detachment that we show in viewing African sculpture, unaware of ceremonial signification. But to the New Yorker of 1937, the photograph says one thing. Here is a gun pointing at a police department. It is an unavoidable comment. Yeah, you could see how the publishers were like, let's get this book out before the World's Fair. Um... <laughs> We're like, Meh, let's have some dry facts. As I noted earlier, um, though Bernice thought of herself as political, she was never very vocal about it. And when a critic later asked if she could write about Bernice's sexuality, she responded, I'm not a lesbian, I'm a photographer. <laughs> this doesn't mean that Bernice wasn't out to her friends or colleagues, and in her partying days, she was arrested aplenty at lesbian bars charged with disorderly conduct, resisting arrest, and assaulting a police officer. In the 1940s and 50s, it became even harder to do political work, especially for gay people. So Bernice wrote photography handbooks. These are inspirational as well as technical. Quote, seeing the unseen is not only a matter of equipment and high-speed flash, it is a matter of the imagination, of seeing what the human eye has been too lazy or too blind to see before. Here is a clip from a PBS documentary called The Quantum World. When an object can't be seen, how can the mind grasp it? The eye, which sees, helps the mind to imagine. But sometimes the mind must teach the eye to see. In the making of images, Science meets art. You can take pictures of babies all day long, and they'll usually be pretty good because babies are sort of cute. But why can't you take pictures of uh, uh, wave motion and all kinds of other things in physics? Simply a different subject, and to me, much more interesting. Um, so science became her third major subject. She started reading up on physics, taking chemistry classes at NYU, and this era also marked her debut as an inventor, inventing a simple way to create distorted images in the developing um, room or the dark room. It's basically the first Snapchat filter. <laughs> a unipod, which is a tripod but with one leg. <laughs> it, was, it was like pneumatic, like you... It could be extended. It was pretty cool. 
Um, it sounded like a joke, I know, but it, it was pretty cool. Um, and the kit jack, which was a jacket with pockets to hold anything a photographer might need. It looks suspiciously like the jackets photographers wear. <laughs> Most impressive, however, was her super sight camera, which could take hyper-detailed close-ups using a reverse camera obscura technique. So the well-lit subject would be placed inside the camera, which then projected its image through a lens onto a big sheet of film on the wall of the darkroom outside the camera. So you, you avoid a lot of the grain that you would otherwise get by, by blowing up images. Um, the only other person she told how it worked was her friend and former lover, poet Muriel Rukeyser. She also worked for Science Illustrated, creating these gorgeous soap bubbles. And it's clear she was perfectly suited to popularizing science for the Physical Science Study Committee in the late 1950s. When the launch of the Soviet satellite Sputnik shocked the United States into reforming science education, Abbott was hired to photograph scientific phenomena in an effort to make physics more understandable to students. It was very clear to me that science needed a friendly interpreter. Why not photograph science? There is an essential unity between photography, science's child, and science, the parent. We had a quiet conspiracy to do good pictures. I did early experiments on my own. I wanted to do a book on electricity, and everybody said, oh, you can't do a book on electricity, blah, blah, blah. The amount of setup it took, you wouldn't believe it, to get some simple little thing. The simpler it is, the more complicated it is. Each picture was an adventure and created all kinds of unexpected problems that were absolutely amazing. It was a wonderful way to learn by doing it, you know. Based at MIT, Bernice would visualize a science curriculum updated for the space age. MIT was also a little bit closer to Maine, where Bernice had been spending a lot of time renovating an old inn. But eventually, she was let go. And those previous clips about the science were from this PBS documentary, where she was all like, ooh, science. Uh, but her actual experience at this like semi-governmental organization was not so great. But I was working with Jim, the young physicist who was a male chauvinist. And he would really make things pretty tough for me. And it discouraged me. I almost wept one day. When my job ended, I was suicidal almost. I was just heartbroken. My assistant got the job, a young man whom I had trained. I think the, the last thing the world really wants are independent women. I don't think they like independent women much. Just why, I don't know. But I, I don't care. Uh, she and Elizabeth were also in, in bad shape physically, with Bernice ultimately losing a chunk of her right lung, um, leading her to finally stop smoking, at least, if not drinking. Elizabeth, suffering from diabetes, alcoholism, and depression, wasn't so lucky, dying alone in their New York City apartment in 1963. They'd been together for 30 years, but of course the New York Times didn't mention this in the obituary. 
not that they would have preferred that they mention this. I'm just saying it to give a picture of the times. Um, by the end of the 1960s, however, Bernice's situation would change. Not only did she finally manage to sell off her Adjay collection, she was recognized with retrospectives at the Smithsonian and at MoMA. Photography was also coming into its own as an art commodity, so she soon had more money than she knew what to do with. She got a boat um, <laughs> called the Adventurous and a cat called Butchie and invested in lakeside property, but sadly also in gold coins on the advice of her new pal, Jackie Onassis. Yeah. <laughs> so she bought all these Krugerrands, um, converted all her savings into them, and then put them in a safe. And then she lost them all when she left town for some reason and, then, and left a combination on a, a piece of paper outside the safe. Anyway, she was, she, it, was, it was ultimately fine, but it was <laughs> awful. Um, she also published a tribute to her uh, adopted state of Maine called A Portrait of Maine and got honorary degrees from like Smith College and the New School in Ohio State. She was also the first American to get into the French Order of Arts and Letters. Her godson, one of Josephine Baker's kids, accompanied her to the ceremony. She loved her log cabin life in Maine. Um, quote, I haven't seen so much fun since the Roaring Twenties. Only, <laughs> only this is more roaring and primitive. There's been some mighty friggin' dancing going on. I'm not sure what friggin' means, but the word around here is legion. The Charleston did not compare with this goof. Anyway, it's vital, and if I weren't so darned old, I'd get up more. But only in Maine could this be. Um, she worked and printed photographs into her 80s. Um, she, she didn't mind aging. I had no idea I was getting older. I never worry about getting older. I don't see why people make so much of a thing about aging. It's so natural to age. Everything is aging all the time. Everybody's aging constantly. Why worry? It's slow. You're not aware of it. Exactly. Here she is um, on her 93rd birthday, looking, yeah, looking like a, like a photographer who's, who's done her thing, like, right? On December 10th, 1991, age 93, Bernice died. At the time of her death, she no longer owned her New York pictures. They were all owned by the New York Public Library. Her science ones were all owned by that agency, the Adjays she'd sold. And a lot of her beautiful work went largely unseen during her lifetime, including those from her road trips to the Jim Crow South in the 30s, um, or her gorgeous collar photographs that she took along US, US Route 1. Um, you can see those in a massive box set called The Unknown Bernice Abbott. And you can get an overview of her most famous work in Bernice Abbott Portraits of Modernity. Their most recent biography, the one that talks about her being gay, um, is the exhaustive uh, Bernice Abbott, A Life in Photography by Julia Van Haften. And you can find digital copies of all of the changing New York pictures in, in super, super high definition on the New York Public Library's website for free for your desktop pleasure. <laughs> and on the website of the Metropolitan Museum, you can watch Martha Wheelock and Kay Weaver's Bernice Abbott, A View of the 20th Century documentary that you've heard little snippets of tonight. Now, as Bernice wrote in 1975, 
The challenge for me has first been to see things as they are, whether a portrait, a city street, or a bouncing ball. In a word, I've tried to be objective. What I mean by objectivity is not the objectivity of a machine, but of a sensible human being with the mystery of personal selection at the heart of it. She conveyed this to all her students, even Allen Ginsberg. I've been taking photographs lately, and um, I've been, I have two photography gurus who both gave me some rebuke on the subject. And then uh, I went to a wedding where there was this lady, Bernice Abbott. She was the bridesmaid at 87, and I was the wedding photographer. And it was like this great opportunity to take pictures of this great photography guru. So I was going around, click, 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 and she said, oh, don't be a shutterbug. It was funny. It's an old 1930s word, a shutterbug. You know, somebody's always going to go, unable to experience the situation, so in great panic, taking as many pictures as possible, hoping to have an experience of the situation later by preserving it. We know this feeling, right? <laughs> Perhaps Muriel Rukeyser, whose eye this is, as taken by the SuperSight camera. Perhaps she saw best what Bernice was all about. Quote. I think of the magazine editor before whose office I waited until Bernice Abbott came down with a series of big science pictures still under her arm. He turned them down, but he said they had very little grain, she told me in wry despair. Another picture editor who could not see. Look at that penicillin until it opens you, brilliant and round, producing its droplets. These things and forces, ripples of water, shallow edge waves, Surface of bubbles, very physical. The prism declaring its effect on life like Cocteau. Light bent, motion of a bouncing ball in a perspective of vanishing arches. Magnets here like faces, actually forces like faces. I think that the witnesses of this art, coming to it for the first time, will see that Bernice Abbott has given us the vision of a world in which all things look at us, declaring themselves with a power we recognize. Perhaps this is what Bernice Abbott called living photography. Quote, living photography builds up, does not tear down. It proclaims the dignity of man. Living photography is positive in its approach. It sings a song of life, not death. Thank you. Florian Dyson's on Bernice Abbott, recorded live with assistance from Thomas Beckmann and Johannes Braun at Akut. As we mentioned, we have a selection of Bernice Abbott's work and great links on our website and episode notes, as well as on our social media channels at Dead Ladies Show. Thanks for that, Katie. And thank you to Florian for the wonderful talk. It was such a fun evening back in November when we recorded that. It was really so amazing to have a full house in our regular venue, Akud, again, to see so many smiling faces. And thank you to all our Berlin fans and friends for coming along. I'd also like to give a shout out, hey, to some of our recent Patreon supporters who help us out over at patreon.com slash Podcast, where we treat them to exclusive monthly audio segments like reviews and interviews in our Dead Lady Book Club. And we also have a few logo goodies on offer as well. So lots of love going out to Samantha Renush, Robin Kirkpatrick, and Prue Walker. We really appreciate your support. Hey, why not join them in becoming a Dead Lady listener, Dead Lady lover, or Dead Lady librarian? There are three levels you can support us at. 
Thanks also to everyone out there supporting us by listening and sharing us with others. We'll be back next month with another fabulous dead lady. We will. The Dead Lady Show was founded by Florian Dowsons and Katie Derbyshire. The podcast is created, edited, and produced by me, Susan Stone. And that music you hear is our jazzy theme tune, Little Lily Swing by Tritachion. Goodbye. Bye-bye. And boop-boopy-doo. <laughs>